You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. There's this classic book um, called The Journey to the East. It's about a group of travelers um, who are on a hard journey together. They go through all kinds of trials on this journey, and throughout the course of the story, each character in the group is, is introduced in detail. If I'm remembering the story right, it's been a while since I've read it, so if I get it wrong, don't tell me. Um, at le- they ha- they, there are lots of people on the journey, and they all have very strong opinions about how this hard journey ought to be unfolding, um, and with each one has their own agenda, their own way of doing it right, all except one. There's one character in the story Who's, who is never directly introduced, except as he shows up in other lives. He's only described in the background of other people's lives and in the context of the journey itself. He's the guy who steps in to fill a gap or address a need or course correct or go out in front to get things ready at a place they're heading toward or to do some menial thing the group needs but doesn't even notice. And like I said, every time he's introduced, it's in the context of someone else's story. Somewhere in the story, that character, the one who lives in the background, who doesn't seem to be spectacular in any way, who isn't even particularly respected by some of the others, he disappears. He's just suddenly gone from the group. And when he disappears, the group, in fact, the whole journey falls apart. They are thrown into confusion. They find themselves missing all the resources they once had. It takes them a while to realize what's happened, that that the one they thought was the least valuable player the one they sometimes treated as a nuisance, the one they barely noticed for all their focus on themselves and their own agenda when he was among them, was the one holding the whole thing together. It turns out the servant had been leading from the back the whole time and had been doing it so humbly without any need for recognition or getting his own needs met, serving with such a big heart that no one caught on he was their leader. And the whole book is about servant leadership. That's what the, that's, it's an allegory about servant leadership. And the moral of the story is this. This is your first note if you're writing things down. The best way to engage the message is with a Bible, something to write on, something to write with. And the first piece is this. Servants lead, but leaders don't always serve. Servants lead, but leaders don't always serve. And that moral asks us, the reader, you know, as you're reading the story, to wrestle with our own motivations, with how we come to the table or how we come into a project. Do we come as servants first with a motivation to serve, or do we come needing to lead or wanting to lead or at least wanting to let our needs lead? Does that make sense? (laughs) It's a powerful thing to admit if you can admit it. Do, Do I come serving or do I come needing to have my needs served? The Journey to the East is not a Christian book, but that character, that character that kind of ends up being the center of the story, he sounds really familiar. And I know you want to say it's Jesus because the answer to everything is Jesus, but that's not actually the person I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about um, a guy who's almost never introduced except as he shows up in other people's lives. He's mentioned 
29 times in the book of Acts. I mentioned five other places in the New Testament, so 34 times total this guy's name is mentioned, and yet we almost never talk about him. I have to confess with you, to you today with great shame that I have never preached an entire sermon on this person. His whole motivation was to serve, and he did it so humbly that most of us who know the story of God have no idea how pivotal his role was in the formation of the early church and in the shaping of the man who would become the most valuable player in the first century evangelism. Any guess? You got it. It's Barnabas. It's Barnabas. So I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 4, and let's find one thread in this man's story so we can pull on it and begin to get a sense of what Barnabas can teach us about big-hearted living. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, um, verse, starting with verse 32. Acts 4, 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. That should sound familiar to you, and I'll tell you why in a minute. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of even that one verse, a lot of um, uh, imperatives. That's not the word I'm wanting to use. A lot of, um, well, there's all, there's ev- any, there's everything. What is that? It's what, huh? Absolutes. absolutes. Thank you. There's a lot of absolutes or something. I can't come up with the word, but it's a good word. There's a lot of that in there, a lot of everythings, a lot of alls. With great power, another one, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerful at wor- powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. You need to underline that. Sold a field he owned and and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. I want you to pray with me. Will Will you pray with me? Jesus, I want to be like that. I want to be like that. I want the heart of a first century follower. I want the reputation of a Barnabas. I want to be part of a community of big-hearted souls who see nothing but possibility and care for nothing but the kingdom. That's what I want. But I am going to wonder in front of my friends why I am not that. What holds me back? What deep-rooted prejudices and fears and greeds keep me from being able to say what I want, keep me from being able to do what I want. I'm looking for your answer this morning, God. So show me where I'm actually guilty, and show me too where I feel shame, where there's no guilt. (laughs) Because I want to get it right, Lord. I want to get this right so that what we have here is as close as we can get to a demonstration on earth of your kingdom in heaven. I guess what I'm asking, Lord, is let your kingdom break in, first in my life and then in your church. 
Give us eyes to see you this morning and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us in this room. And give us a heart that's big enough, not just to receive it and believe it, but to live it. And if you'll do that, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of the universe, we'll be so grateful. We love you and we worship you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. That passage we just read in Acts chapter 4, I said it should sound familiar. It sounds a lot like the passage in Acts chapter 2 that we've quoted many times, the one that begins, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That same spirit flows over into this paragraph, so it must be important for us to hear how that first century community lived out the radical good news they'd embraced that was ushered in with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's how, they, it's how they journeyed together. They took care of each other. They made sure no one got left behind. No one claimed anything of their, on, as their own. They shared everything they had to such a radical extent that, look at verse 34, no one was left hungry. There were no needy persons among them. There were no needy persons among them. So Caleb's little um, mission project today is just sort of a sacramental way of saying surely we can do something to make sure that the needy people don't get left behind. It's a direct reference to Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 4 where God commanded the people of, uh, c- commanded the people every seven years to forgive debts and return property. It's like a periodic course correction for hearts Go be generous to someone. Give them what belongs to them. Deuteronomy chapter, uh, what is it, 15, 4. However, there, he's, he's talking about every, at the end of every seven years, he says. At the end of every seven years, and he goes on and says the things they need to do. And then in verse 4, he says, there need be no poor people among you. I mean, that's the truth, right? There shouldn't be any poor people among us. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised and you will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend to them whatever they need. I mean, this is is the spirit that, that God wanted to see poured into the people of Israel as they were coming out of slavery and headed toward the promised land and this is the same spirit at work in the New Testament church they take on the same values that characterize the people of Israel and it began with property but it would evolve which is to say there is this big-hearted spirit that runs all the way through the Bible and through the people of God, and these stories show up when we are connected with that spirit. So that fund, that Acts 4, verse 35, don't leave anyone hungry fund, that was God's people catching his heart, seeing what he sees, showing up with the proceeds from the sale of their own property so the poor people don't get left behind. They cared for the poor, not out of operating funds or leftovers, but out of the hearts of those who were connected to God. 
And like I said, it began with property, but it would evolve to giving to people what belongs to them spiritually, calling out of them what God has poured in. Remember that. And the poster child for this kind of living, this heart of God, grace and care for the ones in the margins, was a guy named Joseph who belonged to the tribe of the Israelites, the group whose job it was to care for the worship life of the Jewish people. Historically, they weren't even supposed to have property, but Joseph had some land, and rather than settle on it, he gave it away. This comes straight out of the heart of a Levite, the ones who understood sacrifice, who themselves had lived off the sacrifices of the people when they first entered the promised land. Surely that's why Joseph was tagged with a nickname, verse 36, Barnabas, son of encouragement, which I'll admit I'm a little jealous of since the only nickname I've ever had that stuck was not nearly so flattering. Flamingo legs, if you must know. Middle school is hard. Well, I haven't heard them. They've been out of my presence. Son of encouragement is a kinder, gentler gift. Christopher, son of encouragement. The Greek word is the same one used to talk about the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the encourager. It literally means, it literally means big-hearted. I sat back for a minute when I got to this place in the life of Barnabas and I asked myself, what nickname would they give me now? I'm assuming Flamingo Legs has run its course. What most uh, characterizes my life as a follower of Jesus? I hope it's one that would honor the character of Christ and not my worst moments. I wonder what name you would have been given, what nickname you would have been given in that first century community. What name would you like tagged to your life in Christ? So Barnabas inspires a question. What does it look like to be a person of encouragement, a son, a daughter of encouragement? to be generous to another person, to give them what belongs to them, to quote Deuteronomy 15.4. One of the most encouraging people in my life is Avis Ballou. I worked for him at Easter Seals 30 years ago before I became a pastor. He was the best boss. He was sitting on the front row the day we started Mosaic Church. And every once in a while, he just walks in off the street and hands Mosaic a check. He's never stopped being encouraging. I love Davis. I, I love him. He, he, he was encouraging to me. He's still encouraging to me. And one of his favorite things to say to me, and probably most anybody, when we were working there and, and when they, people would walk into his, or walk, we, we would finish a meeting and I would get up to walk out of his office and he would smile so big and he, sa- he would say, I'm so glad you came to work with us. And he did that not once, but for five years he did that. He learned it from a woman named Ms. Mary Webb. Avis is nearly 90 now, and he still punctuates most stories about his professional life with what Miss Mary Webb thought of it. She was the one who told him he'd be a leader and was always so encouraging. She called out the best in him. She valued him just like he was, and that mattered to Avis. So Mary encouraged Avis, and Avis encouraged me. When we are at our best, 
When we are at our best, we build followers who build followers. Write that down. When we are at our best, we build followers who build followers. Not just by teaching them the Bible, but by speaking life into them. And that's the incredible contribution and the incredibly overlooked contribution of Barnabas to the story of the early church. We often hear how he and Paul traveled together and how they had an argument along the way. That's the story Barnabas most gets tagged with. They had an argument over John Mark. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on their next missionary journey, and Paul, evidently John Mark had done something, and Paul didn't want to have patience for it. And so, and so there was an argument between them. But what we almost never hear about is that Barnabas was the one who first advocated for Paul when Paul was just coming to faith and just beginning to talk about Jesus as the Messiah. There was this little thing where, you know, Paul had gone from town to town terrorizing and persecuting Christians that people hadn't quite forgotten yet. How Paul held the coats of the people who stoned Stephen to death. They hadn't quite gotten over that yet. And so when... Someone said that Paul wanted to come and talk to the disciples in Jerusalem. The disciples weren't really sure about that. And it was Barnabas who stood up for him. Look at Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 29. Acts chapter 9, when he came to Jerusalem, this is verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, this is Paul. When Paul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him not believing he really was a disciple. You've been there and done that, right? Waiting for the bait and switch. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the, disciple, to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. It was a powerful thing when people believe in their leader. But listen, it is an even more powerful thing when a leader believes in his people. Barnabas is the guy who vouched for Paul among the disciples. Barnabas is the guy who took Paul under his wing and mentored him for a year in, in Antioch. Flip over to chapter 11. The, the, the church is now in full-on persecution, and the leaders in the movement have been scattered everywhere. So witnesses to Jesus have scattered, and now the story is beginning to spread through them. The church always grows best under pressure. People are coming to Jesus. There's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Antioch. It was big, and the news about it got back to the apostles. They decided to send someone to help, and so they, 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 um, they, they sent Barnabas. And it says, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. This is uh, Acts eleven twenty two. When they When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And then this, Barnabas, verse 24, Acts eleven twenty four, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. <laughs> and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church. Barnabas mentored Saul. And they taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. How cool is that? A good man full of the Holy Spirit. That's quite a reputation. But the sleeper story here is that Barnabas mentored Paul, and that's how they ended up being on mission trips together. Eventually, Barnabas would recede into the background and disappear, but he was the real leader of that movement out into the Gentile world. It was under Barnabas's ministry that people were first known as Christians. Barnabas and Paul were moved together by the Holy Spirit to begin taking that message to the Gentiles. Probably if you're a sports guy or fanatic, you'd have to probably be a fanatic to know the name Lieutenant Colonel Greg Gadsden. He served in Iraq until an IED blew off his legs, shredded his body. 70 pints of blood, some dedicated surgeons pulled him through, but he, he lost his legs. In college, Gadsden played football with a guy named Mike Sullivan, who went on to serve on the coaching team with the New York Giants. And when Gadsden came back from Iraq to, to recover, Sullivan went to visit him. And Gadsden said he'd like to see a Giants game one day, and so Sullivan made sure he got tickets to a Giants game. And that, that season, the Giants had already lost two games, their first two games of the season. And so on the day that Gadsden was supposed to be at the game, he asked Sullivan if, if it was possible for him to get into the locker room to talk to the players. That's pretty bold, isn't it? <laughs> and the head coach agreed. And this is what Gadsden said about that first visit with the Giants. I talked to them about their gifts as athletes and their privilege and special opportunity that they have. I told them that when you're deployed, we're fighting for our country and our flag and mom and dad and apple pie, but when it comes down to it, those things are the furthest things from your mind. You're fighting for the guy that is right next to you, just like my soldiers, they came and fought for me and saved my life. And I told them about the 18-year-old PFC medic that didn't want me to lose consciousness. He's yelling at me and just literally willing me to stay conscious and keep fighting. The team gave Gadsden a standing ovation when he got done with his talk, and they went on to win the game that night. And then they went, won 10 more consecutive games. He was there for every single game, part of the team. He's either in the locker room or he's on the sidelines for every single game. In 2008, they made it to the Super Bowl. Football fans, do you remember that game? Do you remember it, Bill? Maybe? Pretend like you do. <laughs> it was the Giants versus the Patriots. Gadsden was the leader in the locker I mean, was in the locker room. Gadsden was not the leader. He was, in, he was but he was... Anyway, Gadsden was in the locker room, and he was on the sidelines for the Super Bowl game, and he was calling out the best in that team, and they won that night, 17 to 14. In fact, somebody had prophesied it from the sidelines that that would be the score, 17 to 14. And the whole journey, that team considered Gadsden the most valuable player on the team. And so when they handed out Super Bowl rings, Gadsden got one. He was the guy who brought the gift of encouragement to every game. He gave them what belonged to them. That's the blood that pumps through a big heart. 
It's the gift of encouragement to love each other through the rough places because the guy sitting next to you this morning or on any given Sunday morning may have just lost somebody he really loves. And the woman on the other side, she may hate her job. Or maybe she's just lost her job or maybe she can't get a job. And while she struggles, she needs you to fight for her to contend for her, to encourage her. The person with a lukewarm faith needs someone to fight for them, to hang on to them, to have patience and compassion for them while they find their spiritual legs again. The person with incredible gifts may need you to advocate for them, to encourage them, to call out what you see, to be patient while they find their own confidence and learn their own voice. The man who is discouraged because of his illness may need you to hang on to him, to pray for him and fight for him, to speak into his life what he may not see right now. That's what it means to be a daughter or a son of encouragement. When we are at our best, we call out the best in other people. We are at our best when we call out the best in other people. And that was Barnabas, advocating for Paul with the apostles when Paul was preaching the gospel with fire but didn't yet have a reputation they could depend on. And that was Barnabas advocating for John Mark when he'd screwed up somehow and Paul lost confidence in him and didn't want him holding them back. In both of those men, Barnabas could see a treasure in a field, to quote Jesus, willing to buy the whole field because he could see what was hidden there, was ready to walk with these men and help them get their spiritual legs. Go be generous to someone. Give them what belongs to them. That's what Barnabas learned how to do. It's interesting that the Greek word for Barnabas, son of encouragement, you know, we said that, can also be interpreted as son of prophecy. The two ideas are so closely intersected. Those two words, prophecy and encouragement, really are the same kind of thing. At its best, prophecy is calling out the best in people, seeing in them what they may not be able to see in themselves. So Paul says this to the Corinthians, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the, the gifts of the Spirit, especially, especially, he says, prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies, the one who speaks encouragement, speaks to people for their strengthening, their encouraging, their comforting. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Paul says, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. Now stop and think through that a minute. You could have some amazing, powerful, and rare spiritual gift but if you haven't learned how to edify anybody else, what good is that to the body of Christ? The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Paul says this, unless someone interprets so that the church can be edified or, or encouraged, I would rather have you prophesy, Paul says. 
I know why I said that, because one day, when he didn't have a reputation of his own as a follower of Jesus, a Barnabas showed up in his life and spoke up for him. A son of encouragement showed up and called out the best in him, said things about Paul that were not as if they were. So who are you building up? Who are you cheering on right now? Friends, that's the heart. That's the whole heart behind our 21 days of prayer for big hearts. It's that desire to ask God to show us the treasures in the field, the big hearts, people who are here already, but maybe people who aren't even here yet. The people he intends to use to build his kingdom on earth. Go be generous to someone. That's what this 21 days of prayer is about. To get us to go be generous to someone. To give them what belongs to them. Be kind, generous, warm, encouraging, and courageous. Someone you'd want as a friend. Willing to hold on past good sense. Not mistake proof but full of grace in the Holy Spirit, a person of prayer who goes after a prophetic insight. We're praying for Barnabas people. We've made an intentional choice not to quote-unquote recruit volunteers in this season, but to let God do the heavy list lifting, to draw big hearts as we give encouragement. When we're at our best, we build big hearts. Last night we hosted the most beautiful worship-based prayer time. It's something we've been talking about for a while. Mark and Karen Daughtry first came and shared the idea with us last fall. And it took a little time to pull it together, but we got there. I'd never heard Karen lead in worship before, but my goodness, that woman has an anointing, doesn't she? It's a very specific kind of prayer ministry, one that will bless our community richly as we lean into it. And Mark was such a great organizer. We were led beautifully last night, and if you feel the remnants of it this morning, it's because you're sitting in chairs that have been prayed over, touched and prayed over by people who were here last night. What we slowly want to build Letting God draw in big hearts is a team of people who want to bathe this room and our worship in prayer and in encouragement and in the prophetic word. Who want to serve. Karen told us on Thursday night that Ron Fernieho was the one who first called out that gift in her. And she speaks so kindly about her husband, Mark, who has drawn this gift out of her, encouraged her to, to live this gift boldly. And listening to her tell that story, I began to hear just how powerful this gift of encouragement can be and how important it is to the, to the cultivation of hearts. What if no one had ever called that out of her? When Chris came to Mosaic, he did not think he wanted to be a pastor. Who is Paul without a Barnabas to introduce him to the team? Who is John Mark without a Barnabas who hangs on to him while he's getting his bearings? Who is Timothy without Paul telling him to fan into flame the gift of God? 
I look around this room, and I, I had some names. I was looking around this room in my, in my mind's eye, and one of the first names that came to my mind was Horstus, who saw us through this building project. And he, was, he would sit in meetings, and he would ask really important questions very gently, which is important when you're sitting in building project meetings, because everybody's right there. And he, he was so faithful in walking this building project out along with Dave Lockman. And I think about Kurt, who has been our drummer since before we had a mosaic, really, from the very first worship service ever. Very first service wor worship service ever. I have not ever met another person with more stick to than Kurt. What faith. What faith. And, you know, normally Mark Naklinski is in this room who will go anywhere and do anything. I have never heard Mark Naklinski complain. If he has, he hasn't complained to me. He may have complained about me to somebody else, but he's never complained to me. And on Friday, he was there cooking hot dogs. And there are some church ladies in our house, you know, some people who love the church. Julia M. Pink is a church lady. I mean, she loves the church better than most. Julia M. Pink and Jenny Grace, two people, church ladies right there. You, you, you need, they're Levites. They're people who love the house. They're, they're Levites. And our Fayetteville crowd showing up last night to that, they drive all the way here and they show up to our prayer meeting. Man, that is so powerful. Susan has the gift of prophecy. And Susan is a quiet woman, and you won't, you won't hear her say much. You won't see her in, the, in front of anything ever. But she'll show up every once in a while with a dream she's dreamed or a word she's got that'll, bam, it's powerful. It's powerful. I could go on and on and on. <laughs> two people in this room that are probably the most positive creatures. I have Tevin and Gerilyn. I just, they, are, they are positive beyond, I don't know, good sense. <laughs> I don't care what it is. You can say to Gerilyn, <laughs> a crazy thing, but a volcano just erupted in Evans. And Gerilyn would say, well, it must be, it's warmer then. It's nice to have warmer weather, isn't it? Kelly has a heart for the world. Sandy has a heart for prayer. Lynn has a heart for people. Joyce has a heart for hospitality. Randy is the most beautiful, analytic thinker. I, I love his scientific approach to the faith. Cindy, oh my goodness. One person should not be able to have that many gifts. But I told her the other day, her gift of um, worship leading has only matured. You know, you're supposed to get past your prime. She's not, she has only matured. Nancy has a gift of writing. She can write 
prayers. She can write the most beautiful prayers. Her prayers lead the group. And Jerry has this amazing uh, gift of it's, it's, it's faith and admin. And those two things are almost never found in the same body. It's the same with Heather, faith and admin. And when Heather found that niche, boy, it was just like watching, it's like watching a round peg go in a round hole. Beautifully, beautifully done. Yeah. Caleb is a man on the way. He worked so hard to get through high school. And he's going to make it. Yeah. Pam Thomas has been doing min, uh, has been doing media for longer than Caleb has been alive, probably. And she always comes in with a great spirit, always, always. And Savannah was another round peg in a round hole. You would not have suspected somebody with as bohemian as Savannah to be a great sound person. But is, is she not the best sound person? She's just awesome. Yeah. And Tevin's parents are here. And when they show up, I know the spirit of worship is going to show up with them. Don't you? It's going to show up with them. And they'll stay two services. So they beat everybody. They show up, they stay, and they, now you have to. If you weren't planning to, you have to now. <laughs> and I will tell you that I would not be here right now if it weren't for my Steve, who is my Barnabas, who always, he's always told me the one thing you can't do is quit. <laughs> Man, more spiritual power coming from that brown chair in our house than most people have in the neighborhood. We have such a great family. We have so, and Chris, Chris, hospitality for it, pouring out of every pour. I told, I told Jenny, I said, the big hearts we're looking for in the children's ministry right now are people who feel about children's ministry the way Chris feels about hospitality. She needs to be out there. She would rather be out there, not to miss this, but because she doesn't want to miss a person, but because she sees it as worship. Isn't that beautiful? Carolyn, can I address something? This past week, Bill reached to me and he said, Chris, we need to, we need to get the men's breakfast back up and running. And just that heart to rebuild what yeah. has been harmed by a pandemic. Yeah. That, that means a lot. Thank yeah. You, Bill. Yeah. Such a faithful heart and a protector. And Julia's got somebody she wants. And Veronica. Oh my goodness, Veronica. Whoa. The queen of the Maxwell House community room. And all the people who, are, are, who surround her are just such amazing people. The community that I wish you guys could see. It should be required before you become a member of Mosaic. From here out, it should be required to spend at least an hour down at the community room at Maxwell House so you can see just how beautiful it is. The people really care for each other, really pour in. And Veronica's spirit, that's a, that's a Barnabas spirit right there. That's a Barnabas spirit. 
Yeah. What do you see? What do you see? Who needs you to give them what belongs to them? Be generous to someone. That's, that was the call of the first Israelites. It's the call of the New Testament church. Go be generous to someone. Give them what belongs to them. I want you to stand. And, and now is when you can practice that. I mean, you can just go and find somebody and say, here's what I see that belongs to you. My remarkably generous and giving Fayetteville friends, my deeply, deeply passionate life group people, my worship team buddies. Here's something that belongs to you, and I have failed I have failed to hand you verbally what belongs to you. Who do you need to go say that to today before you leave here? Who do you need to say that to? Jesus, I am so thankful for the family. I am so thankful, God, for the body of Christ. So thankful for the people you drew into this room. Thankful, God. Thankful for your love over us. Thankful, God, that you never give up on us. And I am praying, God, right now, as deeply and as honestly and as simply as I can, please, Lord, give us what belongs to us. Give us grace to give others what belongs to them. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.